and welcome to episode 1311 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of this podcast, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of this podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, also of The Ringer. Good to talk to you. We are going to talk to an exciting guest today that you arranged. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Who is... The, the ultimate guest for us to have, aside from Mike Trout, I guess would probably be Williams Estadio, but if you were to have the uh, the second best guest behind Williams Estadio, it would be the first and only pitcher so far to have struck him out twice in one game. And it's yes. Rick Teasley, a, uh, a southpaw, 27-year-old southpaw who has pitched, I, I think I checked my map, everywhere. He's pitched everywhere, yeah. uh, including Venezuela, where last week he struck out Estadio two times, including once, as you'll hear, on three pitches, which I didn't think was possible. <laughs> anyway, so later on this podcast, we will be joined by Superman himself. But before we get to that, we will have a little bit of banter. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you got? Anything you'd like to banter about? Well, I think we have to talk about the Kansas City Royals, which is not a sentence that I expected to be saying this month or anytime soon but the royals are suddenly interesting not good mind you but interesting they are now the proud employers of terrence gore recent effectively wild guest they of course previously employed terrence gore traded him to the cubs earlier this year they have now resigned him and to a major league contract somewhat surprisingly he is uh, on the 40 man now which means there is actually a chance that he might be kind of a regular player in the majors this year might not be but when we talked to him a couple weeks ago he said that was his goal to go to a non-contending team and try to play every day and try to play in the majors and at that time he said that he had had interest from 13 or 14 teams so clearly he was in demand and evidently he was able to leverage that demand into a one-year major league deal that will pay him 650k while he's in the big leagues if he's in the big leagues and 350k when he's in the minors and since he is on the 40 man since he is out of options the royals could stand to lose him entirely if they do try to demote him and so there's a chance that we might see regular season gore before september and now to be clear Okay, so last year in AAA, Terrence Gore was not uh, he was not a very good hitter. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to uh, besmirch Terrence Gore's good name, but when he was playing for the Royals in AAA, he slugged 254, and then he went to Iowa, AAA affiliate for the Cubs, and he had four hits and 34 bats. So we know Terrence Gore, not that much of a threat at the plate, but he, I think he, he said he sort of models himself after Gerard Dyson, and now, it's one thing. He has the opportunity. He's on the 40-man roster. But not only is Terrence Gore on the 40-man roster, but of course, the currently projected starting center fielder for the Royals is none other than Billy Hamilton, who yes. is Terrence Gore, basically. I don't really know another way to put it. Terrence Gore told us he doesn't really enjoy uh, the, the concept of like racing a teammate. He just uh, yes. he said he doesn't really like to, to actually run unless he's doing it in a game. But if you're the Royals... I mean, I don't. You can't really what platoon them. That doesn't make any sense. But on the other hand, I guess it's not it's not a classic platoon. But Terrence Gore bats right-handed. Billy Hamilton bats from both sides. Neither one of them is much of a threat. But I know Travis Sochik has written in the past, and a lot of people, I guess, have also written about ways you could strategically use Billy Hamilton that doesn't involve him necessarily being the starter. And you could kind of imagine the same with Terrence Gore. So I don't know how much fun the Royals are going to have because they need people to get on base billy hamilton and terrence gore are likely yeah. to get on base very often themselves but i don't know in a in a weird way the royals could dominate the late game pinch running industry 
I guess. I don't really, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think it's going to be fun, but I, it's hard for me to imagine exactly how it's going to manifest is fun. But I don't know. Yeah. It's cool now. Well, they seem to be collecting all of the fast players, and none of them are very good hitters, or at least most of them are not. So as you said, they may never get on base, but when they do, it's going to be pretty fun because not only do they have Hamilton and Gore now, they of course have Adalberto Mondesi, who is very fast and the best of these players, and then they have Whit Merrifield. They have Brett Phillips. I don't know whether he'll be starting, but he could be potentially. They picked up Chris Owings recently, who has speed also. Hunter Dozier's pretty fast. I was reading an article at MLB.com by Andrew Simon, and he pointed out that it's possible that the lineup next year, maybe Salvador Perez could be the only player whose sprint speed was not well above average, and that's with Gore on the bench. So... It seems like they're going to be fast, and my colleague Zach Krem wrote about this for The Ringer on Wednesday as well, and he pointed out that the combination of Merrifield and Mondesi last year, in the second half of the season, they together outstole 27 entire teams in the second (laughs) half of the season. Mondesi and Merrifield had 55 combined steals in the second half. That was, yeah, more than 27 teams. So add Billy Hamilton to that, add potentially Terrence Gore, Chris Owings, Brett Phillips. I mean, this could be a super fast team and kind of a fun one. And we asked Gore when he was on, you know, do you wish that you had played in the 80s when everyone was running wild? But this is going to be like the closest that 2019 comes to the 80s. Is this the kind of team that is a lot more fun in the offseason than in the season? Because it's fun to imagine, right? But like as constructed, right. the Royals are quite bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are, yes. It, it, it may very well be disappointing. I mean, if all of these people have 300 on base percentages and just are not getting on base, then I don't know how much it helps that when they are on base, at least they're a threat to go. But it helps a little bit. I mean, look, we've seen stolen base rates decline, again, not relative to the 1930s through 1960s, but compared to the expansion era seasons, we're at a low. And that's, I think, because teams recognize, A, that caught stealings are much more costly than steals are beneficial, but also that in this current run environment, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to steal because everyone's hitting homers and no one's hitting singles. So you just kind of want to wait to just have someone hit a homer and score that way because even if you steal your way into scoring position, you're less likely to get a hit that knocks you in anyway. So in that sense, steals do not really make a whole lot of sense in today's game. But on the other hand, with this Royals team, they're not going to be hitting home runs either for the most <laughs> part. So, I mean, I like it. I we I think we talked about this in the fast. Like, why not if you're the Reds when they had Billy Hamilton and the Reds were bad? Why not just have Billy Hamilton go for the single season steals record? Like, who cares? What are you playing for? Do you really need to optimize every time on base or are you just trying to entertain people if you're not going to win anyway? And sort of seems like that's what the Royals are doing here. Okay, that's fair. I'm looking at the Royals right now on Fangraphs. They are projected as a team to slug 398, projected to be 73 (laughs) runs below average offensively, which I think is actually generous in their favor. But I mean, you're right. Now, how this is the Royals and the Royals are going to do their own thing for a an MLB Now segment. I believe it was it was last week during the winter meetings. It was Meg Rowley's segment uh, and she was going on and talking about the shifts and leading into her segment. They had a little, I don't know, montage isn't the right word, but they showed clips of uh, 
of a bunch of managers at the winter meetings who were being interviewed asked about the concept of banning the shift. And they had mm-hmm. one manager up there, and he was like, no, I, I think it was like Gabe Kapler said, no, that's a bad idea. And they had Craig Council up there, and Craig Council went on a rant about how it was a bad idea. And a bunch of managers said, no, it's a it's a terrible idea. And then they showed a clip of Ned Yost, and he was like, yeah, ban the shift. Just <laughs> ban it. Get rid of it. It's bad for the game. And in, in so many ways, this is not new for the Royals, but they're, they sort of zig while the league zags. You know, they kind of have their philosophy, and they're going to stick to it. And, it's uh, it's both won them a World Series and led them into last place in the worst division in recent memory. So, you know, the Royals are all over the map. But how would we be talking about this if, like, this were the Dodgers or the Rays or the Athletics? Now, in the sense, we it's hard to kind of imagine that because if this were the Dodgers or the Rays or the A's, we'd say, oh, the Dodgers or the Rays or the A's are, are a bad baseball team because look at this roster they put together. But, like, what if, what if we saw those teams, like, getting... Whit Merrifield and Billy Hamilton and Terrence Gore. What would we say? <laughs> We'd probably be pretty confused, I would think. I mean, yeah, if they were, it would be different if these were all fast and really good players. I mean, you know, Mondesi was good this year and, and Whit Merrifield has been pretty good. But I think if they were just collecting speed guys who were also good and stars that would be a little bit different there just aren't really that many of those guys anymore so it sort of seems like the Royals are just trying to make the best of a bad situation here and collect a bunch of guys who were available and also entertaining and I mean you could imagine that if speed were correlated with defense, then maybe this would be a, a smart thing for them to do. Just go all defense and speed, which obviously is what took them to the World Series. But these players are not, you know, Lorenzo Kane. These players are Billy Hamilton and Terrence Gore. And Billy Hamilton is a great defender. Terrence Gore, I get the sense, is not particularly. We don't really have much major league data on him, but his minor league stats are not great on defense from what we have. And, you know, he's mostly a a left fielder, which you figure would not be the case if he were capable of playing a great center field, which is sort of unfortunate because you could kind of squint and imagine like a Hamilton-Gore platoon if they were both as good as Hamilton on defense and they always had the platoon advantage. Uh, You could kind of see it like maybe in Kauffman Stadium too, where you can just kind of slap the ball around and get a bunch of triples. I mean, maybe, but... I don't know. This is just, I think, about making them entertaining. I mean, I don't know if they're thinking that way. Like, boy, we are going to suck. So let's at least give the fans (laughs) something to see here. I don't know if they're thinking that way, but that might be the byproduct of all of this. I haven't haven't looked it up. Have you seen any reports on what the Royals' intent is with Terrence Gore? Because right now they do have kind of a crowded outfield picture. I haven't followed up. I, I I saw that he was signed, and then I just thought, well... He'll be buried or he'll end up in the minors again. I didn't really consider that he could be given a semi-regular major league job, but have you seen reports no. to the contrary? Well, no, but just the fact that it's a, a major league deal makes you think there's a chance. So I don't know. I mean, it's funny. Joe Sheehan wrote about the Royals and their speed this week in his newsletter as well. And he pointed out that the attendance gains that they made when they were good have completely evaporated already. So to the extent that there is sort of a, a grace period and a halo effect and when you win you get better they've already lost that so they drew 1.67 million this year and they were at 2.71 million when they won the world series in 2015 so 
they've lost about a million fans and they've gone back to basically what they were drawing before they won the World Series when they were terrible forever, which is sort of sad. You don't get a whole really long tail to that attendance effect, at least not in this case. So maybe they're thinking, well, we want to draw some fans. Maybe this is one way to do it. And I saw that Sam Mellinger tweeted that Whit Merrifield has led the league in steals each of the last two seasons and will be at best the fourth fastest member of the 2019 Royals. So they're different, at least. It's nice to have teams that are different because there's a lot of homogeneity in baseball these days. Front offices think the same way. They tend to go after the same players. And the Royals, for better or worse, let's be honest, probably worse, (laughs) but they are doing things differently. And uh, that is to our advantage, at least. Speaking of, I guess, high peaks that don't last very long, the Angels signed to Matt Harvey. Uh, yeah. So that that was the, that was the transaction of, of Tuesday, I think, the, the big one. And Harvey got a one-year, $11 million contract, incentives that could take it up to $14 million. When this podcast is over, I'm going to try to write something about Matt Harvey. And uh-huh. there's, there's this pressure that I feel because I feel like it should be like a some sort of big, meaningful piece. Because when when Matt Harvey was, was at his best, he was... He was a genuine superstar beyond just just the numbers. He was one of the most visible, well-known baseball players in the sport because of his personality, because of where he played, because of his performance. Of course, he was in the World Series. But Matt Harvey now is kind of boring, you know, like yeah. as an actual player. And mm-hmm. I look at Matt Harvey now, and he's he's a fourth starter. And you could say, okay, well, he he throws 94 miles per hour. He has the stuff to be better than that. But so does every fourth starter. who, <laughs> Like, the, yeah. we don't really the way we understand ceilings and, and stuff is is incomplete and ins, insufficient so how i don't know i i'm assuming you are not going to be writing about matt harvey but how would you write about matt harvey you know like would you worry about doing making a nod to his earlier career or do you just say well you know the angels are they needed starting pitching, so they found an affordable starting pitcher after missing out on Patrick Corbin and Jay Hep. Yeah, and after non-tendering a bunch of guys and, and not really having any pitchers left. So, I mean, you have to mention it. I mean, he's always going to be different from your average guy with his stuff and with his performance just because he did have that past and because he has very scary-looking facial masks. So <laughs> I think that... Yeah, he's always going to be a bigger name than the performance, assuming that he does not get some modicum of the performance back. It's always going to be, oh man, I remember when Matt Harvey was briefly one of the best pitchers in baseball and very exciting and a big star and potentially a cornerstone of a big market team. And that sure ran off the rails pretty quickly. It's kind of a cautionary tale and a reminder of how quickly pitching talent can disappear and I don't know. I mean, did you write about him at some point in season when he was with the Reds? Like there was a time when it looked like he might be making some changes or might have some potential. I don't know if you did. Someone at Fangraphs did, I think, during his his Reds tenure. But ultimately, you look at the numbers and he was better than he was with the Mets, but not so good that you look at him and think there's a, a huge amount of potential here. I don't know if he's a He's someone that, I mean, we've seen other pitchers go from the Reds to other teams and make changes to pitch location, pitch mix, and suddenly be a lot better. But I don't know if he has that potential now. Yeah, I uh, I, I know that his his fastball played up by like a tick and a half when he went from the Mets to the Reds this year. Now, I, I would imagine part of that is because he was with the Mets early and then with the Reds later. So, you know, arm strength just gets 
stronger as the season progresses. But if you look at Matt Harvey's performance, he is a he's a strike thrower. He throws two thirds of his pitches for strikes. He he pounds the zone, but he doesn't miss bats anymore. He doesn't miss a small number of bats, but he doesn't miss a high number of bats. He just throws strikes. Doesn't get a lot of strikeouts. He has a changeup that's bad. He has a, a four-pitch repertoire. His changeup got worse, and his fastball has just... It's its not as hard as it used to be, but I think maybe more important than that, it's its lost spin. It's lost its rise, so its it doesn't move in a special way anymore. So he's a guy who has a slider, which is, I think, still a useful pitch, but... I don't know. I remember years ago, I wrote about the, the Indians had this pitcher named Cody Anderson. And I, I it was this is back when I was writing about pitch comps. And I was really interested in yeah. seeing whose repertoires looked really similar. And I remember I wrote a post that was like, Cody Anderson looks a lot like Matt Harvey, which at that point was a compliment. And now yeah. Matt Harvey looks a lot like Cody Anderson, I guess. It, it was it was accurate in the moment, but in the negative way. Uh, now, Cody Anderson has missed a bunch of time with Tommy John surgery. I don't know what his career is going to to have for him. But now, Matt Harvey, I mean, there there would have been a time when he entered free agency where you thought, oh, this is going to be a $200 million pitcher. This is going to be a guy who, like, breaks records as a free agent. And and here he is now. I mean, he's been through Tommy John. He's been through, what, a, a shoulder, a scapula fracture, I think, a stress fracture maybe it was. And he's had thoracic outlet syndrome. So he's he's back pitching. He's not bad. Tyson Ross, we've seen come back from Thoracic Outlet, and he is close-ish. He resembles what he used to be. If you watch him throw an inning, you can see him look really good. But with Matt Harvey, I I guess after these five minutes, we haven't settled much. But he's, uh, I don't know, he's a starter. He'll give the Angels 25 or 30 starts, and they'll be fine as the Angels try desperately to claw their way into contention before Mike Trout hits free agency. Mm-hmm. Every other pitcher the Angels have had for the past few years has had some sort of serious injury, either <laughs> usually while he was with the Angels. So I guess they kind of uh, pre-qualified Matt Harvey in that he has already had some serious injuries. So I don't know if that team has enough pitching. I mean, that's kind of the thing that's holding them back, that's been holding them back. So it remains a, a really interesting team and will as long as they have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani and I think, what, if you look at the Fangraphs projections, they're probably in playoff territory right now, right? Or somewhere close to it? Yeah, they're in the vicinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. He gives them innings, I guess, potentially, maybe. I think a lot of people were sort of surprised even to see him get 11 million plus incentives, which sort of sounds like a lot for someone who just got let go by his team and then picked up by the Reds and was pretty mediocre with them too. So I don't know how much of that is based on the name and the face, not the facial mask, but the face under it. And, you know, if this were some other guy with the same stats and performance, would he have gotten quite as much money as Matt Harvey? I don't know. Maybe there's still a little bit of that luster there where teams think, well, maybe there's more in there yeah but i mean remember it was just a year ago that the mets gave jason vargas two years and 16 million dollars and he was coming off yeah. a season that actually as i look at it looked an awful lot like the season matt harvey just had led the league just and wins led the wait oh my god i forgot that ever happened <laughs> jason vargas yep. 18 and 11 anyway i have uh i have two more things i don't know about you they are okay. kind of quick uh one of them safeco field is dead we knew safeco field was dying i guess as a as a name, as a brand, but Safeco Field is henceforth going to be known as T-Mobile Park. Mm. I don't care about that even a little bit, but it is T-Mobile Park. I think it's official as of the first of, of next year. It's something that will take some getting used to like any other name, but it's not like T-Mobile 
Park sounds any better or worse than Safeco Field, which is just a company, a field named after an insurance company. Uh, T-Mobile, yeah. if you are at all uh, confused or curious, there is already a T-Mobile Arena, which is where the Vegas Golden Knights play in uh, in Las Vegas. So T-Mobile has at least two venues, presumably more than that, but two major league venues. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will express again. I don't care, but this is our new terminology. T-Mobile Park. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's strange how it takes a little while to adjust to that. Because the first second you said it, I thought, no more Safeco, the fine baseball tradition, the name Safeco. You just hear Safeco, you think baseball, Mariners baseball, which you do. But yeah, it's just another corporate sponsorship. There's no real difference. I mean, it's kind of a, a tradition in that they've held the naming rights, I think, going back to the beginning, right? When that park opened in 1999. So it's always been Safeco, I think of it. As Safeco, I have almost a nostalgia for Safeco, the name, but <laughs> it is uh, it is completely corporate and money-based and really no different from T-Mobile. And maybe in 20 years, we'll be thinking of T-Mobile Park the same way we think of Safeco Field. Yeah, right. And you could say, well, you know, Safeco at least contains safe and safe is like a baseball term, but so is T. <laughs> Players hit off T's, sure. I guess. So, <laughs> they yeah. They T-shirts. Yeah, right. <laughs> People were well. I mean, they're not the Royals, but keep in mind, like the the Giants when they moved from Candlestick Park, they played in Three Com Park, and then Pac mm-hmm. Bell Park, and then SBC Park, and then AT and T Park. It's all the same park. Yep. Well, that's mm-hmm. four names within the span of one decade. One decade. Mm-hmm. The Giants had. So now, actually, you'll have to remind me. Three Com was different from Candlestick, or am I? Was Three Com actually the renamed? Did Candlestick rename as 3Com? Looking at the attendance, I think Candlestick renamed as 3Com, and then the new stadium was Pac Bell Park, then SBC Park, then AT&T. So anyway, uh, the Giants, though, did play with Candlestick Park, 3Com Park, Pac Bell Park, SBC Park, and AT&T Park. That is five different names within 12 (laughs) baseball seasons and two stadiums. So it's weird to have one change, but I don't know. Are we used to guaranteed rate field yet? That was (laughs) stupid when that was first came out. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to get used to that one. I mean, I think it's really, it's better if it's just one word also is probably better than guaranteed rate. I don't right. know. But Safeco, it, it flowed. Maybe we're just used to it. And it was just as jarring at the beginning. I don't know. You were a Mariners fan then. I wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. Do you want the first? It, I agree with you that having one word is best. But Safeco, you have the emphasis on the first syllable, which I think just kind of helps it flow. And guaranteed rate that's just stupid it's a bad name for a company and a bad name for a ballpark it's a bad name for anything but like t-mobile you the the t is still what you emphasize so just kind of t-mobile park it's easy to say you don't have to like yeah. have some kind of weird crescendo in the middle i think it's i think it's fine well look at all this free advertising that t-mobile is getting on this podcast right now ballpark sponsorship works uh, unless you're guaranteed i mean i guess if any publicity is good publicity, then way to go guaranteed yeah. rate. You, I don't know what you are. Uh, I think the only guaranteed rate in baseball is Chris Davis's batting average. But anyway, the last thing <laughs> that I had was that even though Jeff Passan reported that it's not yet official, there are reports coming out of Cuba that uh, Cuba and Major League Baseball are shortly at least going to agree to a posting system so that we can start to put the end to the horrible practice of human trafficking that yes. has been, I don't want to say necessary, but that has been part and parcel of bringing Cuban baseball players to the States. So even mm-hmm. though it seems like maybe nothing is official yet, it should happen soon. I don't know all the 
on the details of the posting system, but based on the report I read out of Cuba, it seems like the league or the team of the player would get 25% of whatever the money is that a player is guaranteed in his major league contract. So this seems like it's a it's a good thing. It's been it's been years in the making. I can't think of a downside of ending human trafficking of baseball players maybe i'm not thinking hard so enough probably a win for everyone involved i mean we don't know exactly what this will look like but it, it's hard to be worse than a system where you have to have human beings smuggled and endangered and separated from their families and i mean you know you have these very unsavory characters who have been getting these guys to other countries and in many cases they just haven't seen their loved ones for years i don't know whether that will completely change i'm I'm hopefully that you know there are still players i think who escaped and came here and have not seen their loved ones for years i i don't know whether this opens things up for them to have that opportunity hopefully but you read about the horror stories that people like, I don't know, Puig and, and others have gone through. Some of them have told their stories of how they got here. Jose Abreu is another one, and uh, it's always very harrowing. So if it gets less harrowing, then that has to be an improvement. Yep. So uh, so that's that. Look for an announcement on that it's before too long. I don't know how much longer it's going to take. Maybe the reports out of Cuba are accurate and there actually already is an agreement and we're just waiting on some sort of, I don't know, official Major League press conference. But in any case, that's good news. And do you have anything else you'd like to talk about before we get to Rick Teasley? No, I guess not. Yeah, and I I don't know whether this will cause a a bunch of players to become available. I mean, obviously, a, a lot of the top talents there have already come here and have been signed. And so... This will maybe be kind of a future-oriented thing that young players coming up can go this way. I, I don't know how this works in tandem with the international signing limits and you know having to have bonuses that are very restricted unless you're over a certain age. So not sure how this will look exactly. I, I don't think there will be like a, a giant wave of talent suddenly coming over because a lot of the, the best players already have. But yeah, hopefully this will improve things for, for future players. And uh, I don't think I have anything else to get to. Yeah, it'll. I guess it'll be interesting to see if there are going to be age thresholds where they are put because the, the flood of, of Cuban talent has has slowed down a little bit. It is just it is a league of a lower caliber than than the NPB. There are fewer players who are ready to make an immediate major league impact going from Cuba to the States. So I don't know if those players are going to be treated as free agents or whether they're going to have to be signed to small deals like we saw with Shohei Otani. So lots we don't know, but I think the the baseline here is it's good that players won't have to be smuggled anymore, uh, at least in accordance with new rules. So to whatever extent one is just naturally skeptical or cynical of any agreement that giant corporations or billion dollar industries enter into, I think in this case, and no matter, yeah. and governments, of course, uh, maybe, maybe even the, the Cuban government specifically. But in this case, I think we can probably all agree that this is a lot more good than bad. So that is, that's, that's the hot take. Mm-hmm. All right. So we will take a quick break and we will talk to Rick Teasley, double striker outer of Williams Astadio. I'd like to say, baby, you're so nice. I'd like to do the same thing twice. Yeah. Baby, you're so nice. I'd like to do the same thing twice. I love you so much. So much. 
Okay, so we have on the line, I guess I'm very excited for, we we heard from a, uh, a podcast friend of ours, Octavio Hernandez, of something that happened last week in the Venezuelan Winter League. It's something we've mentioned on this podcast already. For the first time, for the first time in his career as a baseball player, Williams Astadio struck out twice in one game against the same pitcher, and we are now joined by the superhero himself, Rick Teasley. Rick, how's it going? <laughs> it's going great. Thank you guys for having me. There's no need to beat around the bush here. Did you have any understanding going into the game, the game you were pitching, who Williams Astadio is? Well, I I didn't know much about him coming into this season. Seeing him play a couple games before I pitched against them, you know, you try to watch the guys closely and ask questions. The guys who have been here, the local guys, they said, you know, he's a big leaguer and he doesn't strike out. They said something like he's the least struck out guy in the MLB (laughs) and you know, some of that you take with a grain of salt. You're not sure how truthful it is. But that's all I really knew was, okay, the guy didn't strike out a whole lot. And then you watch his at-bats and you see him put the bat on everything, swings early and counts. So you say, okay, yeah, he doesn't strike out a whole lot. So that's about what I knew. It is true. We can definitely confirm that that is the case, that he <laughs> never strikes out, except when he's facing you. So tell us about those at-bats. So tell us about the, the first one. What did you try to do against him? So he let off the second inning. And uh, obviously, I faced him once before, and I came in a relief appearance. I threw one pitch. It was a changeup away, and he squibbed it uh, between first and second off the end of the bat. I think he was sitting on a fastball. So I said, you know what? Just just get ahead here. He's probably going to swing. Just make it a good pitch down in the zone that he can't do much with. And uh, so I threw him. I actually threw him a first pitch cutter in that he swung and missed at. So, okay. So that worked out well. Um, we then went away with a changeup, which he fouled off into the stands right behind first base. And uh, we went fastball up. It, it was a good pitch. It's a pitch that's meant to be out of the zone to get him to chase. And he chased after it. So we got him on three pitches the first at bat. And that felt pretty good. Huh. Yeah. Can you tell us, I guess we should have started this way, but tell us a little bit about yourself as a, a pitcher. What were your options against Williams Estadio? What do you throw? Well, I throw a, a cutter. I'm a lefty. So a lefty cutter, a changeup, a sinker, and a four-seam fastball. I mix in a slider occasionally. I don't throw it a ton, but it's more of something. It's a little slower. It's just something I don't try to work on crazy because I'm really trying to work on my other. You put too much in the arsenal to work on, and uh, all your pitches suffer from it. So you you get Estadio the first time. You get him on three pitches, which I didn't even realize the extent of of that miracle. But you uh, (laughs) then you then you get to go up against him again. Now I don't know. I don't know how your own dugout, your own teammates might have responded to seeing you strike him out once. I know that. You have, you've thrown 20 and two-thirds innings down in, in Venezuela so far this winter, and at this point, you'd thrown even fewer, so you're still kind of new to this team. I know you'd played in this league before, so anyway, you, you get asked to do the first time, and then you get to face him the second time. So what what was your experience? How did you mix things up the second time, or did you just go right back to the well and, and pitch him in the same way? Well, I, you know, he came up the next time. I believe it was guys on second and third with one out. Uh, so as a pitcher, you, you don't have a double play in order. So, you know, you kind of pitch around the guy. If we're not going to intentionally walk him, I, I knew I had to throw him pitches that were on the back or off, you know, just pitches to get him to chase, pitches that he can't do a whole lot with. And um, started him off with a fastball away off the plate, and he was swinging. So uh, he fouled that back. And then we went cutter in again, and he it was a perfect, you know, I, I executed very well in that at bat. He pulled the cutter, hard line drive foul. Um, it's a pitch that you throw with the intent that, hey, if he hits it, he can't keep it fair. So he did. He hit it hard, but foul. Went back to a fastball up that he didn't chase and then got him to chase a changeup down. But plated changeup, buried it, and uh, he chased it down. 
for strike three. So did they stop the game, flash it on the scoreboard? Rick Teasley is the first pitcher ever to strike out (laughs) William Tostadillo twice in one game. And then you tipped your cap and both dugouts stood on the top step and applauded and they gave you the ball and and it was a great moment, I'm sure. Man, I wish I knew it was such a big deal. You know, I didn't know that that had never happened before. I knew it was definitely a big deal to strike that guy out twice. Yeah. He actually, he was telling the umpire he fouled it off. <laughs> you know, so they actually stopped the game. The umpires came together. No, he didn't, didn't stop it off. And it was honestly, unless he, you know, Vladimir Guerrero did, uh, kind of hit it like a cricket player. Uh, he wasn't going to foul that. So, you know, they, they came together and called it, yeah, strike three. So that at-bat was over. And at that point, it, the umpires came together and said, yeah, he didn't foul it off. And uh, so in that situation... You know, you don't realize how big the moment was. You know he doesn't strike out much, but you still got guys on second and third, two outs. You got to lock back in because you don't want those runs scoring after something like that. I think uh, the way that it works, your jersey has been sent to Cooperstown. You get an automatic invite to somebody's 25-man <laughs> roster. You strike out Estadio twice, and that's like something that goes at the, the top of the resume, I think, as a, <laughs> as a pitcher. Well, it was after the game was when, uh, you know, the tweets started coming in and I saw you, you guys had messaged me and I was, like, oh, man, this is. Uh, so I went and looked at his career stats. And, you know, he almost never does. He had one strikeout <laughs> on the year here in 100 and something at bats. I was like, OK, wow, that really was that really was some uh, good pitching right there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, just generally, uh, we'll ask you about your baseball journey because you've been everywhere. But when you are pitching somewhere that is not the major leagues and you're facing a major leaguer, either an active major leaguer in the winter leagues or maybe someone who's been in the big leagues before, are you looking at that as a special challenge, like kind of transitive property? If if that guy was good enough to be in the majors and you're good enough to beat that guy, then you're good enough to be in the majors. Oh, absolutely. Um, you have to think that way in order to be successful as a pitcher or even as a, as a hitter, anybody, you have to kind of rise to that challenge and enjoy facing guys like that because it kind of can prove to yourself and maybe prove to other people that maybe you belong to be there or you know it's it just makes it more fun joy facing better guys because it's it's just more of a, a battle and it locks you in and it finds out exactly who you are as a competitor so you said that you you knew astadio was hard to strike out but you didn't realize the magnitude of of your achievement at the moment but even as you are talking to us now you are recalling every individual pitch that you threw him in in consecutive at-bats. So is this, I mean, I used to pitch, but not professionally. So maybe just part of being a professional pitcher is that you have a a very photographic memory for everything that you've thrown. But how how deep is your recall for every at-bat that you have during a game, even a game that was at this point a week old? How how well do you remember every single pitch that you've thrown? Well, sometimes some at bats get away from you, and sometimes I, I guys will occasionally like, oh, what did you throw Johnson last inning? Oh man, which one's Johnson? You know, <laughs> I, sometimes you just you get too locked in or you get too worked up. Um, but some guys like him, knowing he is a big leaguer and he doesn't strike out much, you remember what you throw that guy because he's one that can really hurt you. So if it's a guy that's maybe a four hitter, a five hitter, a big name. You want to remember what you throw that guy because you don't want to pitch in the same way every time um, because big league hitters make adjustments. So that's it. And had you faced him in previous years? Because I know this is not your first winter in Venezuela. I pitched against uh, Caribes. That's the team he's with. Uh, I pitched against him last year. If I did face him, I don't recall because I hadn't heard as much about him before that. So I heard, you know, he was hyped up this year, and that was why I really remembered. You know, that's the guy, and that's why I remember the at-bat so distinctly. Yeah. But I'm sure I could look through something and find out if I had faced him before that. I just didn't do that before this. 
Yeah, he made his big league debut this year, so even though he was not someone who ever struck out before that, he was not quite so well-known for that before, so yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of a legend. Oh yeah, so I hear. <laughs> <laughs> so you were you were drafted by Tampa Bay back in, in 2013, and you spent a season pitching in affiliated ball, and and since then, for for one reason or another, we can talk about this a little later, but you, you were with the Rays, but then the next year you pitched in the Frontier League, then you pitched in Australia, and you kind of did that for a couple of years, Frontier League and then Australia in the winter. And then in 2017-2018, you went down to Venezuela for the Winter League, and that's where you are pitching right now. You've also pitched in the Atlantic League with Somerset the last couple of years. But and what Taiwan, is, don't forget and, Taiwan. And Taiwan, that's not on the baseball reference page. <laughs> <laughs> but what is what's most interesting here is that you, as you know, you are talking to us from Venezuela. You are pitching in Venezuela. This is your second consecutive winter doing it. And I don't know if you've heard, but Venezuela is a country in, in turmoil. How do you decide to go pitch in Venezuela? And how does your family respond when you tell them, hey, I'm going to go spend the winter pitching in Venezuela? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I heard about all that before it came down. I, I've heard of guys coming down here and I said, who in the world would go play down there, you know? And uh, they pay pretty well. They pay well. They pay their imports well. And when you talk to older veteran guys that are in the Atlantic League that actually have played in the big leagues and double AA, A, triple A, and they're coming out here every winter. So you say, man, well, you know, what's it like? And they, they explain to you, hey, we've got security. We stay in nice hotels. You know, they, they take care of you. They're not going to let anything happen to you. You're going to find food. It's all good. The people there love baseball. They're not going to mess with you. And it's, it's kind of how it is. It's, it's, we're fine. There's no worries. Yeah, there's definitely stuff going on, but uh, yeah, they take care of us. And the family wasn't thrilled about it, but when I reassure them and I keep sending them pictures and videos of where we are and what we're doing, they're like, oh, "Okay, you know, it's it's not so bad." You know, they're they're much more at ease about me being here. Yeah, you were just telling us you're about to get on the bus to go to a game, and there's security ready there to get you guys on the bus. So. It seems as if you feel protected and safe by the team, but how did the deaths of Valbuena and Castillo, I mean, how did that sort of hit players in the league? And I don't know whether you had faced them, but what has the response been among the players? Yeah, I was uh, I was set to face them that next day, actually. I oh, wow. fell asleep that night preparing for my start against Lara. I uh, woke up in the morning to the game is canceled because of the accident. And uh, I said, the accident, you know, I had to shuffle through and find out what happened. And it was crazy. I, I was teammates with uh, Castillo last year when I was with the Tigres. And uh, great guy. I mean, everything everybody says about those two guys is true. They're great guys. And it's a very big shock to all these guys here and the baseball community. Yeah, I, I had a buddy with another team that actually left two days after that. And he said, you know, that's enough for me. I'm, I'm going home. So you look at that and, and that's tough to swallow being out here. And it kind of puts you back on guard because you start to get carried away with, oh, we're safe. We've got security. But, you know, things like that can happen very fast. And you know, those guys had no idea that was going to happen. So it definitely puts your guard up a little bit again. And uh, it's tough. But we've been we've been, you know, having the memorials uh, before games when they came into town. And uh, it definitely definitely hits you like reality for sure. One of the things we we kind of take for granted when we deal with with the major leagues or even affiliated ball is that you have a lot of players coming over from from Latin America, non-English speaking countries, and then you just sort of assume that they will be able to assimilate as as best as they can, and then you just evaluate them by their performance. and And you are in the opposite situation now. You having pitched in Taiwan is also a comparable story here, and you look at the roster of the of the Bravos de Margarita that you are playing for now, and you have some. 
you know, English speakers in Cole Sturgeon, Dietrich Enns, Logan Darnell, some teammates, but you are playing in Venezuela with a lot of Venezuelan players. And how is your Spanish? How is the communication on the team? I mean, a lot of the guys on our team specifically speak English. I have enough English for you to communicate with them. And I'm doing my best, and it, it helps me learn some Spanish, too, because I'll always be able to ask them what certain words mean. I'm learning as much as I can in as little m- amount of time as I can. <laughs> but it's definitely an adjustment. It's not your comfort zone. It's not what you're used to. And it's for the first time in my career, probably when I went to Taiwan and when I came here this year, you say, man, these over to America, they don't. They definitely don't have the easiest go when they're trying to adjust to a whole new uh, life, a whole new game, it seems. So you go through it in the reverse and you start to gain respect for those guys who have done it and done a good job, you know, immediately coming over to a new country. So it's definitely different. So as Jeff mentioned, you were drafted by the Rays in the 23rd round in 2013, and you just spent that one year with them. And then leaving the Rays kind of kicked off all the other places that you've been since then. From your perspective, how did that time in their farm system go? Why do you think it ended? And do you think that you've changed and improved things since then? I was fresh out of college when I went to Tampa Bay, went over to Princeton for a week, and then on the Hudson Valley, I Definitely, I put up good numbers. I had a good season, but I I don't think I ever threw as hard as they would have liked me to, and I think that played a role. I came into spring training in in good shape, and, you know, I worked hard, but, you know, when you look around and there's, I mean, Blake Snell. Blake Snell is there right next to me, and he's throwing eight miles an hour harder than me, and he's three years younger than me, so I'm like, yeah. And they got a lot of guys like that, young guys that threw threw really hard, and they, they feel like, you know, we can teach these guys to command and control and their stuff will get good and a guy who's upper 80s isn't gonna be able to make as many mistakes as these other guys will in the future and they just didn't I guess they just didn't project me to to be a big league pitcher since then I've taken that I've learned I've gone to many different places played for many different pitching coaches really good pitching coaches and I I mean I've definitely become a much better pitcher much more polished I look back and I kind of smile at you know the pitcher I used to be you you always do and I'm sure in three years if I'm still throwing I'll look back to now and kind of smile but you know, that's just, it happens. I was grateful that they drafted me. That was a dream for me to just sign a contract. And I actually got drafted. So it was really cool. I cherish that year and definitely hope it's not over with. Still waiting for another opportunity. That's funny. I can't, I can't speak for Ben, but I know when I look back five years at the writer I used to be, I just grimace and shake my head. And I can't believe that that's how I used to write. But anyway, you, you evolve over time. So you are currently 27 years old and, and you were, you were pitching with the Rays when you were 22 and and you have at least intimated in our conversation that you haven't just evolved as a pitcher, but you were also throwing harder. So are you are you are you up into the like the low nineties now? I can I can I can throw. I I think in Taiwan that's that's the one place I've been where I've known there's a gun on me consistently, and I could watch footage and see exactly how hard every pitch was. My fastest pitch in Taiwan was you know, 149 kilometers an hour, which equates to I believe 92.9, so 93. We'll we'll round up for the, for my sake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 93 was my hardest pitch, and that was a pitch that I actually reared back and tried to throw hard. But I don't, I just, as a pitcher, I don't do that a whole lot. I try to command the inside of the zone, locate those pitches that make it really difficult for hitters to not only know what I'm going to throw next, but to time it up and to be ready for it. Change speeds, go up, go down, go in, go out. And, uh, it, you know, you get to the sixth inning and you haven't given up very many runs. So. That's been successful for me, and I'm almost too competitive to just try rear back and throw it hard. And if I get beat that way, I'll be mad at myself. So I know I can get a little higher, 
but I don't think that's a reliable way for me to pitch, especially as a starting pitcher. Do you, mm-hmm. when you are thinking about your own profile, do you just sort of look up to Dallas Keuchel then as sort of a, a role model, just someone to model yourself after? Yeah, yeah, definitely a guy, a guy who can locate, who doesn't throw just absolute 100 miles an hour, but can pitch, can make the ball move. I think late movement gets more outs than velocity does nine times out of ten. I'd love to throw 100, and I'm jealous of the guys who can, but I'm not that guy. And if I'm not going to throw 100, then what's trying to throw 100 going to do for me other than probably make me throw flatter and more over the zone at maybe 93? It's much more hittable than 89 on the black with movement. So that's what I kind of stick to. So of all the different teams you pitch for and the different countries you've pitched in, what has been the best baseball environment just in terms of, I guess, the the atmosphere surrounding the team and the way the the league is run and sort of the fan support? Oh, man, the fan, fan support in Taiwan was wild. Those games are like college football games. There's constant noise and music and chanting. It's like nothing I've ever seen. I'd say the most fun I had was in Australia. That's a great country. The traveling, the beaches, the people are awesome. And the most passionate fans, I'd say, is out here in Venezuela. I mean, I, I say it all the time. Uh, 5,000 Venezuelan fans are louder than 15,000 American fans. It's just how much they care. It's it's wild how, how into the game they are. So every country has its own niche as far as fans or the, the environment that the game is under. Yeah. But it's cool to experience all of them. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the the chants and the crowd participation, because that's something that we hear a lot, that other countries just do it way better than we do. And I'm curious about how we could try to import that, bring that back to American baseball. So what kind of coordinated uh, chants or, or fan participation is there? So in Taiwan, they'll, you know, how here we have like walk-up songs. In Taiwan, each hitter has their own basically walk-up song, but they start it from the time they leave the on-deck circle through their entire at-bat, and it's run by, you know, there's a band back there, and there's a <laughs> there's a guy, like, coordinating it on the top of the dugout, and all of the fans are <laughs> in simultaneous movements, whether it's kind of like a chop, like you would see at a Florida State Tomahawk chop, or they, they have all their different movements that they do, the entire at-bat long, and it doesn't stop, and, you know, it's definitely, it'll, it'll, it'll kind of... Your first time over there as a pitcher, it's it's strange to try to pitch to a guy while all that's going on. So uh, it's it's awesome. I you can YouTube uh, try to look up some videos on it. Taiwan baseball, Korea, Japan do it the same way, and really see what it's like. It's it's wild. Have they built chants that are around you personally? Have you had your own specific chants or cheers? Oh man, while I was pitching, they they actually try to stay quiet while while the home pitcher is pitching. Uh-huh. So when we're hitting, they're loud, but when we're in the field, the the crowd is almost silent, trying to. Uh, let the pitcher focus, I believe, is the intent there. But uh, every once in a while, they give me a, a small cheer for, uh, they'd say my Chinese name out loud. And I didn't gather a whole much else than that <laughs> from the chant. But yeah, it was more quiet when you were pitching at a home game. I guess from a from a psychological perspective, you don't have to speak for the entirety of the baseball playing universe here. But how how do you, how does your focus change or how does your performance change depending on on the volume level of the crowd? Does it matter if they're say for you or against you is it just more fun to play in an electrified environment well honestly i was i was having a conversation with one of our pitchers here about it i don't know what's better is striking a guy out and having the crowd go insane or having a crowd loud for their team to hit and you strike that guy out and it goes dead silent it's pretty both feelings are pretty good um, when it's really loud you definitely it, it gets your adrenaline going faster so they say you know the game will speed up on you yes you have to 
uh, learn to control your breathing. Learn to control your breathing and relax yourself. And the more relaxed you are, the better your body is at doing what you want it to do. So it's something that you have to learn with uh, basically being thrown into the fire. you got to learn it yourself and just go through it and find the comfortable way to, <laughs> to pitch in that situation. Mm-hmm. So your Twitter bio says, I get paid to play baseball with my friends, which you know sounds like you're enjoying life as it is. <clears throat> but of course, you, like every other player, have the goal of getting to the big leagues. So where do you feel closest to that and where do you feel furthest from that? Because I would guess you know, you're know you in the Atlantic League, you're playing with a lot of big leaguers. You played with Ryan Webb this year, whom we've talked about a lot in the past. Is that where you kind of feel like you're getting seen and where you might actually get the call as opposed to somewhere like Taiwan or Australia? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say definitely the Atlantic League is where you're the closest to getting called or maybe out here. There are a lot of the pitching coaches or any of the coaches out here are, you know, in affiliated ball somewhere with a team. So there's eyes on you here as well. But uh, Atlantic League, like, yeah, there's guys that go down in double A AA or triple A and people get signed pretty quickly out of the Atlantic League. I think I had heard that the reason why that hadn't happened in the last two years for me is that I just don't have double A time. So teams don't really want to sign a guy and just throw him in double A if he hasn't been there yet. They want a more experienced guy who has been there and done that. So you know, part of it gets frustrating, but you just wait for the, the, the right time. Somebody somewhere is going to see you and like you, and you get a shot. And if not, you know, just play until you can't anymore and have fun. But uh, the Atlantic League, yeah, there's a lot of ex-big leaguers there, a lot of eyes on you. So that's where you feel the closest to getting that shot. And one might argue that with your, your time in Venezuela, you're, you're sort of pitching at, let's say, a, a double-A equivalent level. You know, there's there's Franklin Barreto is down there. Luis Felbueno has been down there. Alejandro Diaz is down there. Delman Young, Harold Ramirez. Like, they're major league talents or, or former major league talents. So I guess if you had the opportunity to sell yourself, you'd say, well, look, I, I struck out Williams Estadia twice in a game. What more do you need to know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, definitely facing guys here and uh, knowing that, people who are making those decisions know that those guys are out here uh it'll really help putting up good numbers here to uh you know make that push and uh hope for the best and how far in advance do you typically know where in the world you're going to be i mean do you know next season where you're going to pitch or if it's winter do you know where you'll be in summer if it's summer do you know where you'll be in winter because i mean just instagram stalking you it it looks like you're engaged so uh, i guess that you know you have someone who is maybe traveling with you or or not seeing you for long stretches of time so how does that affect your life and your connections to family and friends yeah well it's it's important to find someone who's very supportive and uh, my fiance carly is very supportive of me we definitely stay in touch via facetime or whatever we can family also very important we stay in touch obviously i'm not going to be home for christmas so that's tough but these are times that aren't going to last forever and you got to make the best of it so they all understand that and they're very good support base as far as knowing where i'm going to be i don't know where i'm going to be next year yet the atlantic league is definitely a strong possibility but there's also a league out in mexico they pay pretty well and you know at this point how many more years are you going to play make some money while you still can you know i'm i'm really on the fence of what to try to do here uh so either mexico the atlantic league throwing some feelers out in taiwan to try and go back there but really just right now i want to worry about this worry about succeeding here and then when i'm home in january february try to figure out what the next move is as quickly as possible how does it work for your body? Uh, you've probably heard before that pitching is bad for for your body. It's it's hard on your your elbow. It's hard on your shoulder, and et cetera. To say nothing of the knees. And 
And of course, you you pitched almost a full season with Somerset in the Atlantic League this summer, and now you are pitching in the Winter Leagues as well. So you don't give yourself a whole lot of downtime now. Part of that is is just the hustle, right? You have you're trying to pitch when you can and and find work when you can to get paid when you can. You know, Rick Teasley, go get yours. But when do you? give yourself a chance to to rest or or do you just kind of feel it are you not feeling it how how is your body holding up when you have such a, a crowded pitching schedule uh it's another reason to not to try to throw it as hard as you can every pitch i'd say <laughs> try to pace yourself throughout the season when your arm feels good throw when it doesn't feel great you know go light and uh, manage yourself and then take i try to take a week or two off between seasons because i mean any more than that you kind of get rusty anyway so you know, it's all about make sure your arm, if it feels good, you can throw. If it doesn't feel great, you know, take it easy. But definitely, definitely a grind to go through season to season without much of a break at all. Big time grind. So I'm, I'm looking at the leaderboard right now in uh, in the Venezuelan League. And second place, second place in home runs is a tie with uh, with seven. Two players have seven home runs. Delman Young is in first place with 16. Of course, anyone who is a Major League Baseball fan remembers Delman Young. But have you had the experience yet of pitching to Delman Young? this winter no i haven't yet i'm actually think i think my next start is scheduled to face magianes so i will be and uh, that's definitely a guy that when you sit and watch us play magianes you ask the guys who have faced him all right what are you gonna throw this guy that he's not gonna hit out so uh i've gotten answers of hey don't pitch him in i've gotten answers hey don't pitch him away just gonna i'm just gonna have to go up there and just try my best to keep the ball down and hope that he's not ready for it Yeah, that's that's interesting. That you know the the scouting down there, it's it's very much kind of word of mouth, and you know whereas here you have all this information, you can look up heat maps on you know Delman Young or the Delman Young equivalent. You can watch video on on everyone, and and where you are, it's just still sort of hey, what have you done against this guy? And kind of relying on people's memories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're thankful, and we have a catcher, Francisco Diaz. Uh, he spent a lot of time, I think, in Yankees AAA. And he's been out here a long time. So you, you trust guys like that who know your game plan, but also have played against these guys for years. And you just kind of work together and you, you talk about things and trust him and just execute execute pitches. I, I haven't seen many guys get crushed when they're executing well throughout a game. So it's more so focusing on not beating yourself than it is worrying about who you're facing. You adjust if a guy has a really big strength, you adjust to it. But uh, yeah, if you guys can send me some charts on Delman Young, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> pitch him, pitch him out of the zone. I think is is the answer. <laughs> but that was a, that was always the weakness. Pitching at at any of the levels you've been at, I would assume the answer is no. But have you been able to receive in depth information of of your own pitches? Like, do you, are there cameras that are tracking you? Is there anything maybe in in Taiwan, or are you still kind of pitching in the in the traditional classic mold where you have the information that that people observe and then nothing beyond that. Yeah, that's what I have. I have what people observe. In Taiwan, I could watch every start, and uh, there were some good camera angles I could get, but as far as any kind of spin rate or any, they talked about there's a tracker that are installed at every MLB stadium, I believe, that uh, people can follow stuff like spin rate, but there's none of that anywhere that I've pitched. And uh, I knew there was one in Port Charlotte when I was with the Rays, but I never made it to Port Charlotte. So there's really not a whole lot of information as far as any of that goes that I know about myself or that probably anybody knows about me. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned kind of, you know, not knowing what you'll be doing next season, next year. Do you think much about life after baseball whenever that comes along? Or is your focus now just on trying to push that conversation as far into the future as possible? 
Well, you'd love to push that conversation as far as possible because, you know, still playing baseball for a living, that's great. Um, but definitely you think about it, you're going, okay, now I'm 27. This is all happening pretty fast. You guys start mailing it in pretty soon. So uh, what, what's the plan? I mean, I went to St. Leo University in Tampa. I got a, a, I got a degree in accounting that I'm still – I've got two classes left. just haven't been home in a winter to get them done. I, I have to do them on campus. So it's either play ball, make some money, or go take classes. So still got to finish that up, but, uh, you know, take that, maybe do some lessons. I don't know. I don't know if I could sit at a desk and be an accountant all day. You know, it's more of a thing that I'm just going to have to wait till later and really – give strong thought about when I have some downtime and uh, just figure it out based on where I am or what I do. Well, I know that in your background, you do have a no-hitter that you've thrown. You have pitched all over the world in a variety of different leagues. You've had just hundreds at this point, maybe even thousands of teammates. I don't know how to count. You have had a lot of different playing experiences and you are not only the first pitcher to ever strike out Williams Estadio twice in one game, but you might well be the last pitcher to ever do that as well. So, you know, if and when the day ever comes that you have to hang them up, you have a pretty good list of achievements, uh, life experience. You've you've had a career, Rick Teasley, already to this point. So we would uh, we'd like to thank you very much for your appearance and uh, and thank you for, for finding time and uh, and finding a connection because we weren't sure if we would be able to connect with you at all while you were in Venezuela. So this is this has been a great treat for all of us. Great. I appreciate it. I love the opportunity to do it. I had fun, and I hope it comes out smoothly. Uh, thank you guys very much. All right. Thank you, Rick. All right. So a couple quick updates here. One, there was a huge brawl in the Venezuelan Winter League on Wednesday night. This is just a Venezuelan Winter League podcast now. It was the Leones versus the Tiberones. So it was not Rick's team. It was not Williams Estadio's team. But our recent guest, Octavio, was tweeting about it. You have to see the videos. I will link to them on the show page. And you can also get them from the podcast description in your podcatcher. Octavio has the whole video up. So it seems like it started because the pitcher threw behind the hitter a couple times. So he charged the mound. I don't know what the bad blood was about. But this was the immediate precipitating incident. So he charges the mound. He throws his helmet at the pitcher. Then the pitcher appears to try to kill kick the hitter as if he is a soccer ball. Both teams come out onto the field. While both teams are milling about there on the field, a dude runs in from center field, just a fan, and starts picking up the gloves in the outfield and running back to the stands with them, just stealing the gloves. Security guys chase him, but they're way far behind him. Then something causes the brawl to break out anew, and it gets even more intense, so there's a close-up video that I will also link. And this is not your standard base brawl where people are just milling about. This is a full fracture. Or as Octavio called it on Twitter, una trifulca completa, a full-on brawl. So you can go check that out. Also, update on the agreement between MLB and the MLB Players Association and the Cuban Baseball Federation. That formal announcement came out. So it's only players who are under contract with the Cuban Baseball Federation who are eligible for this posting system. Others can just sign with teams under the same system as other international amateurs. Sounds like the release fees will be similar to what the NPB and KBO posting systems use. So it seems like Cuba and the Cuban Baseball Federation have a lot of control over their players, and there's some pretty severe punishments for people who defect and try to circumvent these rules. Evidently, the Cuban Baseball Federation has to release all of players who are at least 25 and have
have six plus years of playing experience and then they can just sign without having to defect. Anyway, don't think that dramatically changes anything we said in the intro, but more details are available now. Also, this sort of surfaced after we spoke earlier, but more details came to light about Addison Russell's treatment of his ex-wife, Melissa Reedy, as well as a woman named Mallory Engstrom, who also has a child with Russell and had that child while Russell was engaged to Reedy. The Engstrom post details some just petty. Petty doesn't even quite cover it. Also vindictive behavior, paying child support in quarters and singles, trying not to pay child support at all. And Melissa Reedy's account, which was published at Expanded Roster, just describes some of the specifics. I don't think any of it would be particularly surprising, given what we have already heard about Addison Russell. But of course, this has touched off yet another round of anger about his continued employment by the Cubs. For all I know, that employment may have come to an end by the time you're hearing this, but obviously they have not shown any inclination to release him to this point. I don't know whether anything here is new to the Cubs or whether they know about all of this from their own investigation and MLBs, but regardless, having the details surface makes things more uncomfortable for them. Boo-hoo, sorry Cubs. It's sort of like when one of the football players who's been an abuser has a video come out that actually shows that abuse and then, oh, all of a sudden they're gone or the penalty penalties are steeper. Just seeing it makes it harder for people to ignore. It would be nice if it weren't that way. So this isn't an elevator video, but it is still a a harrowing account that makes it harder to hold on to a guy and imagine that he could be redeemed. Clearly this is a a long-term pattern and doesn't sound like something that would be easily rectified. So we will see if this is enough for the Cubs to cut ties. Lastly, a couple people asked us about Pando pooling. The last episode we did, Matt tweeted at us, for instance, to say, I wonder how MLB feels about players with financial interests in each other's careers playing each other. If I'm a journeyman pitcher with few real prospects and I'm facing a hitter in my pool who is a free agent at the end of the year... Am I incentivized to throw them a meatball? And if I had thought of this during the interview, I would have asked about it, but I think the fact that I didn't think about it reflects how unlikely this seems to be to me, and to Jeff, because I asked him about it too. It's kind of an interesting thought exercise, but in practice, I don't think it's much of an issue. I think there are very few cases where a player would actually consider it to be to his advantage to try to help out a player who is in his pool, because obviously players are just trying to do the best they can themselves, so you'd have to have a guy who maybe has already decided that he is going to quit baseball and it's, I don't know, the end of a season and he happens to be facing one of his pool mates. It's kind of a remote possibility. Plus, it's minor league games, so even if this were to happen in a minor league game, I don't know that anyone cares all that much about the outcome of these games other than the player's teammates who, of course, want to win. I don't think this would happen in the majors because once you get to that point, then you really want to do well to maximize your earning power. So, I could envision some very rare circumstances where this would crop up, but for the most part, doesn't seem like a serious problem. All right, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Following five listeners have already done so. Frederick Hines, Ryan Beck, Alex Friedland, David Lizerbrom, and Nicholas Rapp. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. We will probably do emails next time, so please do send us some. Podcast at fancrafts.com. You can also message us through the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins, as always, for his editing assistance. And we will be back to talk to you very soon. You do.